Welcome to The Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Regis, your millennial indigenous science nerd of a host. We are recording in the last week of May 2020. I cannot believe it is halfway through the year, I tell you. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guahan, the Islas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the United States. I'm not from here, so I am a settler. Although I am Chamorro, it is still with respect that I occupy this land and space. We begin every episode with a quote from an indigenous person that resonates. Today's quote, just as the sea is an open and ever-flowing reality, so should our oceanic identity transcend all forms of insularity to become one that is openly searching, inventive, and welcoming. Apeli Haofa, Tongan Fijian anthropologist, writer from Papua New Guinea, and was the founder of the Oceania Center for the Arts at the University of the South Pacific in Fiji. This quote resonates because this episode will be about identity. I feel like that was very fitting for the very first episode on Pacific Islanders because identity is definitely something that we all struggle with internally, whether we're conscious of it or not. You will hear from David Garcia of the Philippines, Timiti of Samoa and Tahiti, Toa of Fiji, Carol Ann of Pohnpei, and myself, Kalani, Guinea Islas Marianas. And we will end today with a discussion of a white paper from April 2019 about the U.S. military and how they use our Pacific Ocean. The paper uses poetry from Craig Santos Perez to parallel what they are saying, which is refreshing. I would also like to mention that the first 25 reviewers of this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, will be sent our very first round of waterproof vinyl stickers for your Hydroflask, Yetis, and laptops. So please review us and help us spread the word. Let's do it. Let's dive in. What is your Pacific Islander identity? There was something going around on Twitter earlier about the part in the movie Moana, where her grandmother sings to her and says, Moana, listen, do you know who you are? What would you answer if someone asked you that? How has your knowledge of your culture and the history of it shaped your thinking and upbringing? The Pacific Ocean is easily the largest blue area of Earth. It is so large, it's bigger than the landmass of all the continents combined. Our ancestors traversed this ocean like their backyard. While other places in the world were figuring out whatever they were figuring out, The Great Pacific Migration had us settling ourselves in the islands as much as 50,000 years ago for islands closer to Australia and Papua New Guinea. So unlike other areas of the world, we Pacific Islanders get to hang on to our creation myths. Maybe some of the longest. Anyway, let's fast forward to the present. Indigenous people of the Pacific are still here. They are everywhere. They are you. They are me. You'll hear from some others in this episode. What is my Pacific identity? I'm David Garcia. I'm a map maker from the Philippines. 
but right now I'm living in Aotearoa, which is also called New Zealand. To deal with that question about my identity, let me tell you a series of stories. When I grew up in our home island, Luzon, back in the Philippines, I was taught three languages. First is the language of my mom, Tagalog, which was deemed by the ruling class before, after the revolution, as the national language. My father, on the other hand, in the province where I actually grew up in, is from the Kapampangan ethnic group, and he has another language. But then at school, we were being told that for the Philippines to be globally competitive, we need to learn English. So when we were kids, we were being given dictionaries and materials all in English, and I grew up with shows from America. In the previous generation, Spanish was also taught, but there was a point in time where they stopped teaching Spanish, perhaps in the 1970s. And then I went to the, to the university and used English some more, and then I graduated, started working around the country, and then I realized there are so many languages inside the 7,641 island archipelago. We have 180 languages, more than that, in the Philippines. And sometimes when I go to the other islands, people think I'm Japanese, which was for me very, very interesting. Within the Philippines itself, we're also having this flux end and maybe identity crisis about who we are. Since back in the days of the Spanish colonization of the islands, a lot of peoples were grouped into just one label, the Philippines. All of you peoples, you are all under King Felipe II, and that causes so many problems today. And then I went abroad, um, studied in London for a while, and people think I'm in the Indonesian, which is also interesting, and I did not take offense because of that. And then I finally came here to Aotearoa for my PhD. And when I heard Maori people talk, I heard similar words, sometimes even the same words as those we use, not just in the so-called national language, Filipino, which is derived from Tagalog, which is not even spoken in the majority of the islands. Same words as those in Kapampangan, my father's language, say the word matwa. Matwa means elderly people. Here, the variant in, in Tewaipunamu, South Island, in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, is Kaumatwa. And for me, that really blew my mind. And, and I had a look at different websites about Tarea Maori, Maori language, and I saw that the words for the eye, like mata, the sky, rangi, here in the Philippines, it's langit. The, the word for the boat, vaca, in the Philippines, it's banka. Word for the land here, Fenwa, which is in the Philippines, Banwa, which also means land or people or nation. It's very interesting. We are speaking very similar words about fundamental ideas, even if we are 8,000 kilometers away from each other. And that's how I found out about the great voyage by the Pacific peoples from uh, near Taiwan onwards to the ocean thousands of years ago. So now I go back to the question, what is my Pacific Islander identity? I think of it in terms of intersections, in terms of crossings, in terms of currents, and these currents intersect, like in the ocean, in the same way that the great Pacific navigators were able to determine that land and their home is nearby because of the crossing currents, 
Perhaps that's how I'm gonna determine who I am, which is also changing, as I try to find my way home. I just want to remember these very important ideas about who we are as specific peoples and how it will change. Beautiful response by David Garcia on his Pacific Islander identity as a Filipino mapmaker. Check him out on Twitter advocating for indigenous mapmakers. David grew up in the Philippines, a Pacific bordering Asian country which has over 7,500 islands and 180 plus languages. This one country alone is a testament to the diversity of the Pacific. We are truly diverse in and around Oceania in more ways than just our fish, but our people and our languages too, which is why David isn't just bilingual, he is trilingual. We not only share similarities in language, but also similarities in origin. We come from the same roots. This is also the reason why many Pacific Islanders are mistaken for each other, have words that sound like each other, like David mentioned, and have similar cultural traditions, even before colonization. David and I share a similar part of our identities because his homeland of the Philippines and my homeland of the Marianas were both named after Spanish monarchy due to us both being colonized by the Spanish in the 1500s. Because of this, Filipinos and Chamorros share some similar cultural and linguistic traditions even today, some of which we are actively working to overcome or otherwise which we have learned to accept as part of ourselves. David compares his identity to ocean currents, a beautiful visual. Never forget that our indigenous ancestors navigated this huge swath of ocean that takes up over 30% of our blue planet. Biba Pacifica. Sizuasmasi for your view, David. Yorana Talofa. Hello, bonjour. My name's Timothy or according to Europeans, Dimitri, Trinity, Timothy, or Timothy. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but if you've had your name Europeanized, please let me know so that we can have a laugh together <laughs> over their attempt, well, or their lack of attempt to pronounce her name properly. So yeah, my name is Dimitri. I was named after the sea in Tahitian by my parents. Um, because, well, my mom and dad and my grandparents were all from different places in the Pacific and abroad, and the sea represents the living space between the lands which connect our families. They also wanted me to take on this element significance and mana. Technically speaking, I'm uh, of Samoan, Danish, Tahitian, and French descent, predominantly, so that makes me quite a fair-skinned Pacifica Polynesian. The French don't believe me when I say I'm Polynesian after spending a few winters in Europe because of how pale I get. <laughs> Samoans call me an Afagasi and Tahitians call me a half or a dumi. Being called a half-caste has definitely impacted my identity and my trying to shape my identity throughout my teens. 
But today, as I enter adulthood, I know that someone's identity, a person's identity is ever-changing. You can shape it. It's not fixed. When I was a kid, when people used to tell me, oh, you're a half-caste, I would just think, okay, all right, I'm a half-something, I'm not worth anything, I'm not whole, I'll never be whole. But that's wrong. And um, yeah, as I've grown up, I've understood that I am the sum of my many parts. And I try to pay my respects to all the elements that make up my cultural and linguistic heritage. So yeah, I'm the sum of my many parts and not just an afakasi. And I hope wholeheartedly that in Tahiti and Samoa, people will eventually just stop calling each other half-somethings. I just think it's just the wrong kind of narrative to try and instill into the mind of a growing child in a colonized space. It's just not right. Anyway, my upbringing and my mind are Polynesian. But I have to admit that my tongue doesn't follow. I'm not fully fluent in Samoan and Tahitian. And right now, living in France and being a teacher in France, I can tell you that I am not fa'asamoaing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, traveling abroad has somewhat uprooted me and I'm looking forward to going back to the Pacific. Um, there are some strong Polynesian communities here in, in France. And it's always so good to be around like-minded people. I miss my finua. Yeah, I think that today I can really appreciate being many things at once and being on the threshold of so many different beautiful cultures. I think that my liminal position enables me to better observe those cultures and navigate them and criticize them in order to better them. To finish up on this whole thing, I do identify with Moana as I left home early and traveled beyond the reef. My grandma and I were close. We're both, well, she was a traveler and a storyteller and she educated me to become a traveler and storyteller. Every night by telling me bedtime stories about us, our family, our culture, other people's cultures. She never told me any princess stories, though, now that I think about it. She left my French granddad tell me all about Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and the like, because apparently those stories were written by a French guy. <laughs> so here it is. Nana! That was Tamiti from Samoa and Tahiti. I love that Tamiti is the ocean, and her parents named her that to connect her to the ocean, which sounds like a true blessing. Tamiti's account of identity is something that many other indigenous children can relate to. We are increasingly throwing off the older generation's habit of valuing pure blood in an effort to embrace globalization, modernization, and just the stark reality that it shouldn't matter how pure of blood you are. As Tamiti said, I am the sum of my many parts which is a mindset that no part is less than another when it comes to archaic blood quantum. Isn't everyone else also a mix of different genes from different places? If there was one thing I learned from reading all those papers, trying to find the origin of where our ancestors hailed from, it's that we are all connected. 
I think that Pacific Islanders who care about blood quantum and ethnic purity are still struggling to adapt to globalization and perhaps the changing conditions of their people. As Tamiti mentioned, we should really work on stopping these race or ethnic-based archaic practices of keeping the blood pure. I mean, you love who you love, and you have babies with whoever you want, but shaming kids for being born needs to go. Tamiti also explores the idea that although her upbringing and mind are Polynesian, her tongue does not follow. This is something that many Pacific Islanders whose parents never taught them their native language growing up can relate to, including me. Although our parents may have had good intentions, little did they know that they disadvantaged us by depriving us of our means to relate to our cultures. Not all of us go through this, but for the ones that do, it's sad. Language connects us to our culture. Without it, it's harder to care. There's a quote that goes, Languages are definitely a tool of communication, but they resemble much more than that. They serve as a tool of reconnection to our springs of tradition within our cultures. That was a quote from Dr. Ken Cooper of the University of Guam. He said that in his thesis, entitled Nalotla Ihilata na Matotnya Itautota, Chamorro Language as Liberation from Colonization. I'll include the link to his lengthy thesis in the show notes. Thank you, Tamiti Sidusmasi, for your view. All right, now after hearing from Tamiti and from David, why don't we take a break and come back, and then I'll give you my take on identity. Awesome. Welcome back. After hearing from Tamiti and from David, here is my piece on identity. As I thought of my response to this question on identity, I felt an injustice for how colonized my upbringing was, and I think you'll be able to hear that. What is my Pacific Islander identity? It helps me to imagine my identity as something other than my physical appearance, ethnic origin, and nationality. I feel like my identity isn't a spectrum composed of those three things. I think of it like a body of water from a mountain spring. If my identity was a river, it would always lead me to the ocean. It is rooted in the land that I come from and is fed by all the springs that shape me. It is fluid and changing. My identity is that of a strong Chamorro woman who has struggled at times in the past to understand my own culture and my place. Being called Amerikanun Poasu by my family growing up, it's kind of like a derogatory term for like acting or sounding like a white American, but not being a white American. It's a little insulting. And just like some people claim derogatory identities, I claim that one. It made me feel superior to be able to speak, read, and understand English so well. But on the other side of that, my appearance, my native language, and my history, I grew up knowing relatively little about in contrast to how much I learned about the United States, my colonizer. I realize now that although I could wish as much as possible that my culture had been preserved in a vacuum so that I could have been formed in virgin spring waters, 
I also acknowledge this is a pipe dream. I'm formed from the trickles of many places. That is my fate, and it forms my identity. I am an indigenous Chamorro from the Marianas, from the Pacific Ocean, who learned her history and is continuously learning, who is reclaiming her language, and who has much to learn and grow from. I want to be able to learn enough to be worthy of teaching people about it one day. And I want to code switch fluidly between my languages and maybe learn other indigenous languages. My position is to bring my islands forward with me. My upbringing has given me tools to accomplish this. And the love I have to see my islands and people free and thriving will give me the motivation. What more could I ask for? Sainama Asi, I thank you for your attention. What is my Pacific identity? <laughs> in a sea of people, who notices a face? In a sea of islands, who notices a dot? One who knows the value of a star in the sky and the different clouds on the horizon. If experience has taught me anything, it's that the islands have one thing in common. Yes, the peoples change and evolve. Yes, there has been blood and conflict. But no matter what, the Vanua has always accepted us, weathered us, sheltered us, and above all, nurtured us. My identity is an oxymoron. I am proud, yet I would like to be humble. I am fierce, yet I strive to be gentle. I would like to live a lion, yet be remembered as a lamb. I am a fierce pacifist who will fight for my people. People, <laughs> what is the identity to an islander? We are not one, but many. I mean, long before communism, we already knew that in order to go far, we need to work together. After all, does the sea differentiate which drops of water make a wave? Does the wind determine which gust will make a storm? We have always been stronger together. That is what I am as an islander. I may write my music, but I am one instrument among the orchestra. I may not get a solo even if I am good, yet I will still play my best if it means the piece is celebrated. I may think white, but the soil I walk on is still brown. I speak foreign, but the air still smells of the sea. I use binoculars to look far, but the sun still helps me to see. I may be different among peers, but an islander knows. The Vanua will always be there and will always care. Even if I fall into the last embrace, it is she who will curse my body into eternity while my spirit rejoins those who have gone on before to await those still to come. If you couldn't tell, Toa is our resident Fijian poet of the group. He speaks so beautifully and does not lay claim to any colonizer-created margins of the Pacific Ocean. He told me he draws some of that from the great Apeli Ha'ofa's teachings as well. Ask Toa if he's Fijian. He would say yes. But ask him if he is Melanesian, he would not. 
As a pacifist with a different colonial history than mine, we see things differently. Whereas I am always ready to get into a discussion of my dislike for my colonizer, the United States. Fiji was colonized by the British differently. Toa mused aloud to me personally about how his colonizers were perhaps better? This implied that there is a best colonizer situation? What would that look like? You know what I think it would look like? Well, I'll save that for another episode. Carol Ann is a Pohnpeian biochemistry major who writes beautiful prose. As such, her first submission on identity is actually on her blog, which I will include a link to in the show notes. She wrote something similar to an origin story, and I'm so sorry if I'm butchering these names. The story of Isokelakel and how he overthrew the oppressive Sodalur Empire in Pohnpei. She relates the story of a possibly diasporic Pohnpeian who returned to Pohnpei to liberate the people from the Sodalur dictatorship and bring about positive change. To do this, Isokelakel had to integrate himself and learn about his people before he could make an attempt to free his islands. Here is Carol Ann's narrative. After presenting the story of Isokelakel and the Sodalur Empire, I believe this serves as a great opportunity to delve into the concept of identity in the diaspora. The diaspora is defined as the dispersion of any people from their original homeland. Isokelakel was born and raised in the diaspora. In the origin story, we know that he was born of Luke Nansapwe, a god of Pohnpei, and a woman of his clan, which would indicate that both his parents were Pohnpeian. From the story, we know that his mother was residing on Katao Pedak, which is presumed by many historians to be the island of Kosrai. Isokelakel returns to Pohnpei in order to fulfill his destiny and overthrow the Sodalur Empire. With no narrative to fill in the time between his birth and his return to Pohnpei, I can only assume that he was raised on Katao Pedak. Just like the many children born and raised abroad, we come across this narrative, the issue of identity. For many individuals in the diaspora, there is a question of whether they are Pohnpeian or American. By blood and by clan, they are Pohnpeian. But, having been raised on foreign soil, would that not cause their identity to be the contrary? This brings about the issue of identity. In my opinion, identity does not have to be geographical. I feel that this concept resonates with many in the diaspora. They can lay claim to both the motherland and the land that was caretaker and witness to their growth. In the end, these children return to Pohnpei in hopes of helping their motherland. It is their calling as much as it was Isokelakel's. Was it not our own history that set these children up to be reared abroad? Was it not the political structures of our forefathers that were set in place that allowed for this to happen in the hopes that these children would return and become the great leaders that Pohnpei would need in these changing times? In the wake of globalization, the ever-growing threat of climate change? Was this not the perceivable fate of these diasporic children when the Compact of Free Association was created? For me, Isokelakel serves as a historical representation for the children of the diaspora. He was born of Pohnpeian parents and was destined to return to become a great leader. This echoes the fate of many. Just like he, when these children return home, they are met with much skepticism. What are their motives? 
Will they be able to fit into the social structure of Pohnpei? Having been raised abroad, Pohnpei represents a culmination of the journeys that come to its shores. Isokelakel's arrival brought change to the social structure. The chiefly systems set in place today in Pohnpei are a direct product of the rebellion he led. In the case of current events, those who do return to Pohnpei to assume their place also bring about change. If Isokelakel's rebellion were to happen today, he would be met with skepticism from the people. Just like he, diasporic children will have to learn the culture when they return. They will have to assimilate back into it. They will have to gain the trust of their communities and of the entire island before they can even begin to implement the change they want to see on the island. It is this identity crisis that many face. It is the skepticism that keeps many cautious. Unmistakably, it is the culture that allows them to flourish. This is the end of Carol Ann's story and dialogue. In reading her post about identity, I myself resonate with it a lot. Like I mentioned before, if you would like to read her account, including the full story of Isokelakel, I'll post it in our show notes. Diasporic children often leave or were born away from the home islands because of circumstances they can't control. We're not here to judge others for their reasons, nor are we here to talk about the ones who move away and don't look back. Carol Ann's story has a diasporic hero. He's destined to come back and create positive change in the community that made his existence possible. Many of us relate to this. I relate to this very, very much. Carol Ann resonated with me because she ended her piece with actually another story. Here it is. I think this is a great ending as well. This diasporic narrative is reminiscent of a story I have heard from the island of Tana in Vanuatu about the tree and the canoe. The story tells how we as children of Oceania are like a canoe. Having been carved from the tree, we voyage across oceans. In that same instance, having been carved from the tree, we are still the tree, rooted in our home islands. The identities we carry are as much the tree as our voyages are shaping us to be the canoe. Being of the diaspora does not need to mean that we are disconnected. We are voyaging and, at the same time, we are rooted. Having read Carol Ann's identity submission, I have to say that their origin story in Pohnpei and Isokelekel is very similar to where I am from, the Marianas. It was also known in the Marianas or discovered that we had two waves of Chamorros. The first wave being the original settlers of the land and the second wave coming about a thousand years later and bringing with them new technology such as laddie stones, such as pottery that was more intricately carved and different genes as well. So it is very interesting that Carol Ann's origin story of Pompey with Isokelakel coming to overthrow the original empire there is somewhat echoes Chamorro origins, actual genetic origins of the second wave coming, being superior, bringing about change, and ultimately they were known 
or speculated to have become the high caste of Chamorros, known collectively as the Chamori, or also known as the Matua. And it's so similar. I had not known until I saw Carol Ann's Ponpeian origin story that other places also experienced the second wave of people. It was a beautiful submission. I love the idea of diasporic children being the canoes carved from trees of their homeland and they are out voyaging but at the same time they are still the tree they still have their roots back home and many i think have issues with their identity because they don't feel like the tree or they've been told their whole life you're not the tree you're something else you're where you are now when in reality our identities are a mix of all the hands that shaped us. And just like I said, with my identity, is formed from the trickles of all the springs that have fed me. I believe diasporic children are also formed. Other people helped carve that tree, turn it into the canoe, and are helping you on the voyage. We've reached the end of the narratives. However, I would invite you at this moment to take a break because up next, we are talking about a white paper. Yay! All right, wow, such great perspectives. What a great finale story to end with. I actually almost cried reading that the first time. We've now accomplished looking at our identities with a critical and poetic touch. I turn to you now. You're listening because you're a Pacific Islander. So where are you from? What is your identity? Did hearing our views affect your views? Who did you resonate the most with? We would love to hear from you. Tweet us at Deep Pacific Pod with your thoughts. Your tweets will make it to our collective group of islanders. Thank you for listening thus far. Awesome. Today we will be discussing a white paper entitled Toward a Critical Ocean Studies for the Anthropocene. Don't freak out. Anthropocene just means the current day and age of, you know, technology and humans. By Elizabeth DeLoffrey. Professor DeLoffrey teaches English at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. She is author of Roots and Roots, Navigating Caribbean and Pacific Island Literatures. Very clever. Co-editor of Caribbean Literature and the Environment Between Nature and Culture. Postcolonial Ecologies, Literatures of the Environment. And Global Ecologies and the Environmental Humanities, Postcolonial Approaches. This work is important because, as she mentions in the paper, engaging in discussion and critique of the military is the only way to begin meaningful thought and scholarship and should create a ripple effect to spread awareness. The militarization by the U.S. on our Pacific Ocean affects all Pacific Islanders. Historically, as in the case when the Kingdom of Hawaii, as well as Guahan, were annexed for their strategic positions in the Pacific. The paper mentioned an account of service members describing our islands as quote-unquote lily pads, 
refueling stations, and our ocean as just a force field. More recently, the U.S. Navy has included the Indian Ocean as part of their force field as well. Like the expansion to the Pacific Islands in the 19th century, the U.S. Navy's inclusion of the Indian Ocean in its definition of the Pacific derives from strategies of energy security. There are five vital sea lines of communications that connect both oceans through a lifeline of oil shipments from the Middle East. And then she goes on to name the five, which I don't think is very necessary at this point. The paper was actually a pleasant read because it used the work of a native Chamorro poet and writer, Craig Santos Perez, to help their critique. This is what the author had to say about him. Since the beginning of his From Unincorporated Territory series, Hatsa, in 2008, Perez has rendered visible a military that is too often hidden in plain sight. He has critiqued the history and depiction of Guahan as a strategic naval base, as USS Guam, and has framed his poems as providing a strategic position for Guam to emerge from colonial and military hegemony. I hate that word. What is hegemony? As such, he draws extensively on indigenous voyaging traditions to poetically contest and mitigate the U.S. Navy. Cool. Go Craig. Here, we have to mention one of the bigger critiques in the paper, which is the Rim of the Pacific War Games, hosted by the U.S. Navy, also known as Rim Pack. A reason for sailors and airmen to play Call of Duty in real life using bombs, artillery, sonar, helicopters, submarines, and warships, along with about 25 participating other nations. According to the U.S. Navy website, RIMPAC is a unique training opportunity that helps participants foster and sustain the cooperative relationships that are critical to ensuring the safety of sea lanes and security on the world's ocean. Because the majority of oil exports are over water, U.S. energy policy has become increasingly militarized and secured by the Navy, the largest oceanic force on the planet. This is a quote taken directly from the paper. The 2014 RIMPAC war games invoked by the poem led to the widespread devastation of marine wildlife and a 2015 ruling by a federal judge that the U.S. Navy exercises, especially the use of explosives and sonar, were endangering millions of marine mammals. The Navy's activities were harming over 60 populations of whales, dolphins, seals, and sea lions, and they... They didn't include turtles in there. Why didn't they include turtles in there? Sonar definitely damages turtles' navigational abilities. Anyway, and they, quote, admitted that 2,000 animals would be killed or permanently injured, end quote, by sonar or ship's strikes in the 2014 RIMPAC exercises. This includes such species as endangered blue, fin, and beaked whales, which, by the way, Hawaii has one that is incredibly endangered, false killer whales, spinner dolphins, melon-headed whales, and endangered Hawaiian monk seals. The court determined that there was a breathtaking assertion by the U.S. Navy that their oceanic exercises allow for no limitation at all. That's, that's what's in the quotes, allow for no limitation at all in terms of time, space, species, or depth, and that there was no justification for needing, quote, continuous access to every single square mile of the Pacific, end quote. So here's my opinion. They liken our islands to glorified gas stations, our ocean backyard to their means to conquer, 
an empty highway for them to throw their trash overboard, empty their bullets into, and disregard the millions of endangered species of animals and endangered cultures they harm for their inflated sense of protecting the empire, aka the world's oil supply and deep sea mining interests. This militarization affects the Pacific because it ensures that we will always have a trigger-happy colonizer presence for protection and ensures that as long as the United States has us as property, we will always be in danger and our lives will always be under constant threat. Currently, what is being done, there is little to be done other than to protest, raise awareness, and voice our opinions as fellow Pacific Islanders to the U.S. Navy at every possible opportunity. I have done this in the past, uh, as far back as 2013. I was given extra credit to do it. I will say that right now. But when I went, I, I could not stop going. After I went to one meeting and I was the only brown person there, and yeah, sure, I was only there for maybe half an hour, but I was the only brown person there. It was not a well-publicized meeting. They do that on purpose. They want us to not show up. They don't want our comments. They know what we're gonna say. They know it's not good. If this situation was reversed, they wouldn't allow it. This year, 2020, would be the 27th RIMPAC, or the 27th time the people of Hawaii will see their rightful waters, caretaker of our cultures, used as a playground for an international war games. This week, the U.S. Navy is also using the Northern Mariana Islands, as well as the waters around Guahan, for their training exercises. I don't doubt that we will see some animals lost, washed up, or beached due to this. My heart is heavy. Puti kurasonhu. My thoughts on the future are, well, the Navy gives little opportunity for us to voice our opinions on these matters because they would rather not set the precedent for actually listening to what we have to say. They will not re-examine their place in the hierarchy of our islands unless more attention is given and they have people rioting in the streets. Which right now, Black Lives Matter. So that riot, you know, takes precedent. My friend, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening to the first episode of Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast featuring Islander views and voices. Although we would normally come out with episodes every two weeks, we will be releasing our next episode just next week because we can right now. Because, you know, Corona. If you are interested in any of the resources we mentioned in the episode, find them in our show notes on our website, which we will link everywhere we can. We are so excited to hear what you have to say about us. Find us on Twitter at Deep Pacific Pod or at our website, www.deeppacific.org or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, you will hear from us about our native language and how that ties into shaping who we are as native people. Also, don't forget, the first 25 people to review us will get a free Deep Pacific sticker. I'm so excited. Sainama Asi for listening. Thank you.